Welcome back to the program. With the execution of the uncle of Kim Jong-un, we saw another example of the brutality of the North Korean regime. Perhaps more than any other nation, North Korea is disconnected from the norms of civilization. That has been the case for some time, and it's why most efforts to bridge the divide have failed. This was the case back in 1968, when the USS Pueblo, a ragtag American spy ship, set out to find radar stations along the North Korean coast. On a cold January morning, the Pueblo was attacked and its crew shot at and captured. The incident remains one of the seminal dramas of American foreign policy in the 60s and of the Cold War. And once again, shows the efforts of an American president to avert war on the Korean Peninsula. My guest, Jack Cheevers, has recaptured this story in his new book, Act of War. Jack Cheevers is a former political reporter for the Los Angeles Times and worked for several papers and wire services in the Bay Area. It is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the capture of the spy ship Pueblo. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Great to have you here. Why go back and revisit the Pueblo incident? Well, I think it it illustrates um, the double-edged nature of uh, eavesdropping on other countries. And we've been reading a lot about the uh, National Security Agency uh, spying on other countries recently, and it's something the the United States has been engaged in for a long time, uh, along with many other uh, nations. And it makes a lot of sense, of course, to know what your rivals are doing in the world if they're preparing to to launch a war against you or your allies. Uh, but it also has a downside, which is uh, it's by its nature it's very provocative, and people don't like being spied on. And the, the North Koreans are uh, very very sensitive uh, to all all sorts of intrusions, and they reacted uh, uh, with. Uh, quite a bit of venom toward the the Pueblo when it approached their shores. It was also something that was very much part of the whole Cold War mentality that existed at the time. I mean, those of us that lived through that period remember the Pueblo incident the same as we remember the U-2 incident. Yeah, I'm finding that out. uh, A lot of people have told me that, and uh, I was just a kid when, when it happened, and I remember you know, learning a few vague things about it, but but certainly not the complete story. Um, it, it definitely made an impression on people. It was a, it was a huge no, news story at the time, uh, both because of the, uh, the you know the the anger that people felt that Americans felt at the capture of the ship by this you know fourth rate country. Uh, it was during peacetime. It was uh, the ship was in international waters. It was conducting a military mission. Uh, everything was very legitimate about what the Pueblo was doing, yet the North Koreans not only captured it, they shot it up, they killed one of the crewmen, they injured ten more, and then they threw the rest of them in prison for a year. Uh, but the, the drama continued when the sailors came home because the, the Navy conducted a, a, a series of public hearings into what had happened and basically wound up uh, blaming the captain. And a lot of Americans reacted very angrily toward that because they thought the captain wasn't at fault. He had been put in an impossible situation, and the Navy was trying to scapegoat him. The context also, as we've been talking about, the context was a big part of it in that this was the Vietnam era, and there was this perception of of one failure after another on the part of American foreign policy and American military action, and much the same as the confusion that we had with respect to many of the soldiers returning from Vietnam. 
Right. I, yeah, this this happened at the height of the Vietnam War in uh, early 1968. It happened just before the Tet Offensive, uh, which was on in everybody's living room on their on their TV screen night after night, being narrated by Walter Cronkite. Uh, and uh, I, I think the uh, the Johnson administration was was very uh, sensitive to what was going on with the Pueblo because there was a possibility that that, that, that would ignite into a second land war in Asia, uh, which would have been an even more nightmarish prospect for the United States to have to fight on two fronts in Asia, uh, Vietnam and, and Korea. Talk about what actually happened on that January morning. Well, as you mentioned, the, the, the ship was... was um, uh, it was small. It was a uh, converted army freighter. Uh, it was very lightly armed. It only had 250 caliber machine guns. It was by itself. It didn't have any protective backup from a, uh, you know, a Navy destroyer or any, any jets overhead. And uh, its mission was to get in as close to the North Korean coast as possible uh, to gather electronic uh, intelligence on radar and radio, uh, radio, radio stations that you know, could be used in the event of war. And uh, the, the North Koreans came out and uh, circled the ship a few times. Uh, uh, they had six gunboats, uh, t- uh, two submarine chasers, and four torpedo ba- uh, boats with uh, two MiG fighters in the air overhead. Uh, and uh, they uh, ordered the, the, the Pueblo tried to escape. Uh, the captain uh, tried to flee back to the, to the open ocean, and the North Koreans ordered him to stop. He kept going. And uh, they opened fire on his ship uh, with uh, cannon, 57 millimeter cannon and 50 caliber machine guns. They they uh, opened their torpedo tubes uh, for close in shots. It was it was clear that he was completely uh, trapped and outgunned, and uh, he gave he stopped and uh, surrendered his ship. It's the first time since 1807 that uh, the U.S. naval commander had given up his ship. Uh, without uh, firing a shot. So he became quite a notorious figure uh, within the the Navy High Command. Talk a little bit about him. Tell us about the captain. Well, his name was Lloyd uh, Booker. Uh, Everybody knew him by his nickname, which was Pete. Uh, He was 40 years old at the time. Uh, He was a... He was a, a career Navy officer, uh, and uh, he was a very intelligent man. He kept a collection of Shakespeare's works in his in his stateroom on the ship. Uh, he was a very fun-loving man. He loved to drink and sing and party. Uh, he was a genuinely charismatic person. I, I interviewed him uh, about six times at his home down in San Diego County, um, and uh, he was an orphan. And uh, uh, he'd been raised um, in uh, Boys Town, famous refuge for neglected and abused boys in uh, in Nebraska. And um, he was he was uh, I think caught in, a, in just an absolutely horrible dilemma because he was one of these uh, a military commander who, who genuinely cared about his men, and uh, he felt the choice was between uh, surrendering and. Uh, and fighting back, uh, and in the process, uh, seeing num- uh, any number of his men killed uh, in what he regarded as a, a futile attempt to escape from the North Koreans. Uh, so, so he gave up the ship. The ship was captured, and the crew was held in confinement. Tell us a little bit about what happened to them. Well, 
the men were uh, uh, imprisoned by the North Koreans for 11 months uh, under conditions that it's uh, that are almost unimaginably horrendous. Um, they were tortured. They were beaten over and over. Uh, they were starved. Uh, they were fed uh, such poor diets uh, that one of the men um, went partially blind uh, from a lack of vitamins. Um, they were deprived of heat. They were deprived of sleep. Uh, when they were first uh, brought into North Korea, uh, the communists were determined to break them down quickly so that they would start, you know, mouthing their propaganda and participating in stage press conferences and, and confessing about, you know, the, uh, saying that they were spies and that they had violated North Korean waters. Uh, none of those charges were true. And uh, just to take the captain, he was beaten over and over again uh, on the on his first in his first days there. He was subjected to a mock execution. He was pushed down onto his knees, and somebody stuck a gun in his ear, and he was told that he had two minutes to decide to sign a, a false confession or they'd blow his brains out. And they counted down from two minutes. Uh, the captain kept uh, he just he he was trying to distract himself from what was about to happen, so he kept. Uh, uh, murmuring that he loved his wife. He kept repeating, I love you, Rose, I love you, Rose. And uh, uh, they, uh, when he, he realized it was a mock execution, he was taken into a, uh, to a different building downstairs into what looked like a dungeon, and he was shown a man who had been uh, horribly tortured by the North Koreans. He was unconscious. He had, a, he had uh, uh, welts all over his body, one of his eyes looked like it had been knocked out of its socket. Uh, he was foaming at the mouth. His, one of his arms had been broken. A bone was protruding from his arms. It was just an, a nightmare sight. Uh, and so shocking to the captain that he actually passed out when he saw when he saw this man. He, at first, he thought it was one of his own sailors, uh, but the North Koreans told him that it was a South Korean spy that they had captured, and and this was the the just uh, punishment of spies in their country. So there was there was just enormous. Uh, pressure placed on the men, physical pr pressure and psychological uh, pressure as well. Uh, they, you know, the North Koreans tried to pit them against them. They withheld letters from home. Uh, they did everything possible to break these men down. Talk a little bit about what we knew with respect to what was going on, what the Johnson administration knew, and the actions that Lyndon Johnson took at the time. Well, the Johnson administration was baffled by this when it first happened, and uh, Johnson convened his best and his brightest, uh, his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, uh, his CIA chief, Richard Helms, his national security advisor, Walt Rostow, his uh, secretary of state, Dean Rusk, and they tried to figure out what had happened and, and, and what was behind it. Uh, and their big worry at the time was somehow that the Soviets had organized the whole thing, that the, the Soviets had basically pushed the North Koreans into capturing the ship uh, because it was loaded with all kinds of uh, code machines and advanced electronic surveillance equipment that they wanted. Um, and gradually uh, the, the, the administration, I think, realized that that wasn't the case um, and uh, the next question was how to avoid uh, this thing setting off a war, uh, because there were, you know, many Americans, you know, wanted military force used to recapture the ship, uh, and in South Korea, a lot of the uh, the military was advising the president 
that he should actually invade the North. He should take advantage of the situation to, to invade the North because Johnson, um, in addition to uh, secret negotiations, uh, secret di diplomatic activities to try and get the crew back, he was rattling the sword and building up U.S. military force in the region. He sent about 350 combat jets into the area, sent a naval armada. There was about 30 ships that were led by the, the nuclear carrier uh, Enterprise, um, and uh, gradually they discovered that the Soviets probably weren't involved. It was probably something that the, uh, the North Koreans just did on their own initiative, basically as an opportunistic move, because the ship was alone and it was so close to their shores. Um, the, the, you know, the crewmen, the uh, sailors' families, obviously, were very upset, very worried, didn't know what was going on. They weren't getting a lot of information from the government. Uh, the media didn't know what was going on, and uh, the administration, in fact, was telling the families that not to worry too much. They were negotiating to get the men back, uh, and that they were being well treated. Um, and in fact, the men were being very, very badly treated, uh, uh, which came out later. How did the administration think they could negotiate to get the men back? The administration really only had that one option. Uh, the, uh, Johnson and his people decided very early on that they didn't want to go to war. Uh, they had enough war on their hands in South Vietnam. They didn't need a second, a second front in Asia. Uh, um, and so that the only way out was um, some sort of diplomatic activity. And they thought at first that they could basically make some sort of vague uh, expression of regret and the North Koreans would accept that. Uh, and so the, the, a, a series of secret negotiations were initiated at a little village uh, in the demilitarized zone um, between North and South Korea, a little village called Panmunjom, where a, a U.S. admiral uh, was meeting secretly with uh, members of the North Korean government uh, and basically making offer after offer that the North Koreans kept rejecting because they wanted... The uh, one thing and one thing only was, which was a, a, a signed apology from a high-ranking uh, U.S. official. Uh, and after it became clear over many months that that was the only thing the North Koreans would accept, uh, that's exactly what the Johnson administration did with one twist, uh, which was a, a very funny twist. They decided that they would uh, denounce and repudiate the apology before they made it. Uh, rather than after, which was a technique they had used with the North Koreans in the past. And it was something that had, had, had the idea had come from the wife of a, of a mid-level State Department official. Uh, and it, it, it sounds like kind of a crazy idea. It sounds like, you know, offering a, a, a voided check to a kidnapper in exchange for giving up his victim. But the North Koreans accepted it because basically that's what they wanted from, from day one. They wanted a, an official apology from the United States government. Uh, that they could then beam, you know, at their own people as as internal propaganda and say that, you know, once again they had brought the great, you know, uh, the great imperialist aggressor to its knees. And they really did want it, and that's an important point, that they wanted it for internal consumption. Yes, I mean, that's uh, the North Koreans are, are um, you know, they have a very closed hermetic society. Uh, they allow very little information in from the outside world. Um, and uh, they do everything possible to control their people, to suppress dissent, and to make the people work as hard as possible, to be as productive as possible for uh, to help drive the economy. What you know, the, the very weak economy they have, and uh, 
they you know they they were they very easily threw away the you know the repudiation American repudiation of the apology and just broadcast the apology itself to their own people uh, and and uh, there were a lot of the there were diplomats from you know other communist countries in Pyongyang that were watching this whole process and they and one of them commented that. Uh, uh, what, what a unique internal propaganda tool this whole operation was. One of the other things that was going on simultaneously was the upping of tensions on the Korean Peninsula in general, that just prior to the Pueblo incident, there had been this attempt made by the North Koreans to assassinate the South Korean leader. Talk about that. Yes, it was, it was an extraordinarily tense time because um, just... Two days before the Pueblo was captured, uh, the North Koreans actually attempted to murder the president of South Korea. Uh, the, uh, the leader of North Korea at the time, uh, Kim Il-sung, sent a team of uh, 31 highly trained North Korean commandos into Seoul, and their mission was to uh, invade the presidential residence there, which is known as the Blue House, and decapitate the, the South Korean president, uh, murder his entire family, and then steal trucks from the motor pool and head back to the north. And uh, this team of commandos uh, slipped across the border undetected, uh, got within a half mile of the Blue House before a suspicious traffic cop in Seoul finally challenged them and broke up the raid. Uh, and uh, the, the South Korean army and combat police and uh, the uh, U.S. soldiers were pursuing these commandos one by one. Uh, they scattered in all directions, uh, and one by one they were tracked down and killed. Uh, only two of them supposedly got back to the north. One of them was taken capt captive, and the rest of them were, were uh, killed. Uh, and as I say, this happened just two days before the Pueblo arrived off the port of Wonsan, uh, which is on the east coast of North Korea, a very heavily militarized uh, uh, area, a big naval base there. There were uh, lots of MiG uh, fighters based there at the time. And um, because of the, uh, the attempted assassination of the South Korean president, um, the armed forces in both North Korea and South Korea were put on maximum alert. A lot of people feared that, that war would break out at, at any instant. It was a very, very tense moment. The, the, it was exactly when the Pueblo arrived. Nobody had warned Captain Booker what was going on in Korea. Um, and uh, the North Koreans, you know, all of a sudden, here's, a, here's an American spy ship that shows, shows up right off their coast. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, they went out there to investigate and wound up uh, attacking and capturing it. Tell us a little bit about the political aspects of this and how the capture of the Pueblo played out in the politics at home. Well, it actually did become a, uh, a political football uh, during the campaign of 1968 for the presidency. Um, uh, Nixon, or Richard Nixon was running as a Republican against Hubert Humphrey, uh, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Um, uh, the war was raging. Uh, people, you know, the very strong emotions about the Vietnam War on both sides. Uh, we had, you know, rioting break out at the 
Democratic National Convention in Chicago that year. Um, and many Republicans saw the capture of the Pueblo as yet another example of Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party's weakness on national security matters. Uh, it's a theme that the Republicans were sounding then, and it, it continues forward into our own time. Uh, and um, Lyndon Johnson had announced in March of 68 that he wouldn't run for a second term, but he was still president, and his vice president was running to replace him. So the Pueblo became a, 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 a convenient political cudgel for the Republicans, and uh, Nixon referred to it in, in his speeches. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California at the time, referred to it in his in his speeches, and uh, the Republicans did everything possible to uh, to use it to damage the uh, the Democrats politically. Tell us a little bit about the state of the men when they were finally released, and also the perception of Captain Booker. Well, the the men were. Um, you know, they had, had survived 11 months of, of horrendous um, abuse in prison, and uh, they got out. They were uh, emaciated. They had, you know, in, in many cases had lost uh, anywhere from a third to a half of their body re- body weight, uh, which means that, a, you know, a 200-pound man who, you know, went in prison as weighing 200 pounds came out weighing 100 pounds, if you can imagine that. Uh, they... Um, a lot of them felt that they they would not have survived another winter in North Korea um, because of the conditions there. So they were. Uh, it's hard for me to to even imagine how they felt exactly. I, you know, exuberant probably doesn't even come close to describing how they felt. Uh, when they came home, they didn't know exactly what to expect. Uh, they had participated in. Uh, uh, press conferences with the North Koreans. They had, had, had helped the North Koreans uh, with their propaganda uh, attack in the United States. Uh, they had been interrogated um, over and over and over about the secret equipment on their on their ship. Some of the men had given up information on the equipment uh, because they were under such duress for such a long period of time. So they didn't know uh what would happen to them when they came home they they weren't sure how the uh, how their fellow americans would perceive them how they would be received at home some of the men thought that the navy would march them straight to the brig as soon as they got out um for violating the uh, the the uh, code of conduct uh for members of the armed forces uh, one of the main tenets of the code of conduct is uh that you won't cooperate with the enemy uh, in any way that you, you know, the famous edict that you only give your name, rank, and serial number, and that's it to the enemy. You don't tell them anything else. Um, Booker, when when they were released from North Korea, uh, he was a- asked to uh, speak at a press conference, and he explained what had happened. He explained uh, uh, why he had surrendered. He he apologized for surrendering, uh, but he said he felt he had no choice. It was either do that or see his men slaughtered. And uh, many Americans uh, very much sympathized with him, uh, understood that he was in a, a very horrible situation, and he made a choice that uh, many people applauded. Some people were very angry that he had given up without a fight, that he had violated, you know, 200 years of Navy tradition. Um, you know, why didn't he act like, you know, Stephen Decatur or John Paul Jones, or why didn't he slug it out with the commies? Um, a lot of people were very upset about that, but. Um, the polls show that that a, a pretty strong majority of, of Americans actually sympathized with with his situation and supported the men when they came home. 
finally, why do you think that this incident, this story, still has such resonance today, all these many years later? I think it's uh, it, it's an extraordinary story uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is just for the the endurance of the men, the fact that they managed to get through this situation. Uh, if, uh, Booker uh, may have surrendered the ship on the high seas, but he proved to be a, a her, almost, I would say, a heroic leader in prison. Um, he repeatedly demanded um, better food and medical care for his men. He endured beatings on behalf of his men. He, at one point, when when he was uh, had lost eighty or ninety pounds himself, he went on a hunger strike of all things for a week. Uh, to protest the conditions in prison, uh, and, and, and the, the communists didn't even yield to that. Um, so I think that people respond to uh, just the dogged determination of these men to, to stay together uh, um, and and to survive uh, in in the worst possible conditions. Uh, and I think. Um, uh, partly the story is also is just kind of a warning about the dangers of the world. Um, uh, you know, we send uh, our servicemen and our service women out into the world every day on these kind of missions uh, on our behalf to you know to to try and preserve peace and stability in the world. And uh, sometimes uh, things go wrong, and they pay. Uh, a very, very high price uh, on behalf of the rest of us so that we can stay at home and, and be safe and raise our families in peace. And I think that strikes a chord with people as well. Jack Cheevers, the book is Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship Pueblo. Jack, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Jeff. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.